0: Welcome to the podcast, episode 9. No, baby, it's episode 11, yo. Episode 11. We're going to drop some flavor in your ear, dog. Ear,
1: dog!
0: (laughs) Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada, I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. <laughs> I guess more and more these intros are going to be repping 1990s hip hop. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Episode 11 already. I'm loving it. First off, our sponsor, BetterHelp. This is a group of online counselors that provide high-quality care on your time, okay, whether that's through telephone, whether that's through video conferencing, whether that's through text messaging. They're there at your disposal. They're affordable, and they're awesome. You can get a 10% discount by using the promo code Solving Healthcare, and they're at betterhelp.com. So we just finished episode 10 with Cindy Hooper and honestly what a what a great episode. She's now 7 approaching 7 years after her diagnosis of pancreatic cancer and we're so proud of her and I do want to make a quick shout out to some new friends we've developed Michelle if you're listening she's she was diagnosed with leukemia and this is another person that is one of the most active people you could imagine avid runner, cyclist Swimmer, and she was in such great shape. She never missed a uh, a cycle of her chemo. She cycled to her treatments, which is unbelievable. And she's thriving today. She's doing well. She's uh, enjoying her time with her three kids. And I, I just want to make a quick shout out to Michelle because it was great hearing her story, especially after doing Cindy's episode. Okay, so episode eleven. All right, we're talking with. A good friend of mine, Dr. Jennifer McComb, she is an academic neurologist at the University of Alberta. She's got a master's in public health through John Hopkins. But yeah, like she's a baller. And the reason she's on the show is what she learned after, like seeing her son go through cancer treatment. Her lovely son, Henry, had an unfortunate diagnosis of neuroblastoma at the age of eight months. and what she learned from that experience, I think we could all take lessons from like you'll see in this episode how this really shaped how she communicated how it changed her communication style with patients, how it changed how she approached families and treated families, and ultimately how she treats patients like she's much more you'll see much more aggressive in in her treatment plans because of what she learned going through. What she learned seeing her, her son go through cancer treatment and, and the uh, complications from that. And and I can honestly say she's an inspiration to me. And I've learned a lot watching Jen and her husband, Mick, go through this. And I should say that, you know, Henry's alive and he's growing and he's doing fine. But he still has his struggles. But you'll you'll hear more of that through our interview with Jen. But uh, without further ado, here's... Dr. Jennifer McComb. Dr. Jennifer McComb, how are you?
1: Good thanks. How are you?
0: Fantastic. We have known each other quite a while, and I was trying to remember the details on how we met. Do you recall how we met? How we first met?
1: Oh, first met. Um, <laughs> I suspect it was in some class in grade ten, but I can't remember our Absolutely. exact first meeting. I just remember hanging out with you.
0: Yeah, I remember Forgive me for saying you were wearing some, the jeans on that were hiked up, and a denim denim shirt. And I, I didn't think you were still, despite your attire, one of the cool kids in class. So I did oh, figure I, I I had to approach you. So um, yeah, it's been a while. And I guarantee and, but,
1: I dress better than you did.
0: Oh, uh, that that is quite possible. I was busting out a, a high top back then. But yeah, thanks for uh, agreeing to do this. So I want to talk to you as. An academic neurologist, as uh, an educator at the undergrad level and at the residency level, where do you see some of the problems in our current healthcare system?
1: So I think, honestly, the biggest problem that exists in our healthcare system relates to communication. And in truth, it spans all of those levels that you talked about. So um, I think we struggle with communication and teaching it to students. Initially, we struggle with communicating with one another sometimes effectively. And we definitely struggle at times with communicating appropriately with our patients. And so I think that it's something that really affects kind of all levels of care.
0: Amen. And uh, I I don't know if you had a chance to hear our previous work with uh, Gianni, but Yeah. I I wish we could do this, a better job of this. And I wish people would take it more seriously personally. Like we should be teaching this communication out of the gate. You know what I mean? Like in medical school, repeatedly throughout residency, because this is where a lot of our problems lie.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, I mean, one of the big reasons I chose neurology as a subspecialty is that the nuances of a story and how we communicate with the patient is often where the diagnosis lies but going beyond that i think it it affects healthcare utilization if communication is poor i think that people you know are less happy with the medical care system if we're not communicating correctly or if we're not kind of i guess meeting with them on their level if we're not listening to what they really need to hear and and giving them what they need during their interactions with us
0: yeah and i'm always curious to hear from your, like at a personal level like you know it sounds like you appreciate the value of effective communication but was this something that was taught to you was this something that you're meant you got mentorship on like where did you develop this
1: mm-hmm. it definitely wasn't formally taught i mean i don't i remember you know clinical skills sessions and, and sessions on how to take a history but i never got the sense that they were talking about you know how to effectively communicate and empathize and and listen to the patient. It was more about just these are the the elements that need to be included, and so mm-hmm. not specifically on the communication itself. How my learning came about is that you know I was able to find role models, I guess, of this throughout my career, and because it's something I've always felt was really important, I was attracted to role models who did it well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then during my residency, similarly, I've had some great role models in terms of how to do this well and it's always something that's been important to me even before that in my life and with my friends and with my family it's just something i feel like is has been something i've always strived to do well to to really listen to people and to to hear what they're truly trying to say and address that
0: yeah absolutely i mean part of what you're saying is a bit scary in the fact that you are a good communicator one cuz you've valued it but the fact that you needed to seek out The attention, or the you know, the mentorship, or the role models to be able to model or emulate that. I feel like this should be emphasized. I feel like it should be something that's taught up front. Yeah, it
1: should be a standard part of our teaching. Absolutely, it shouldn't be something you have to seek out because it is, I think, a cornerstone of being a good physician.
0: Like you think about all the clinicians that I know personally that have gotten awards for being excellent at their job all of them have that same quality. They can communicate well, they could express empathy, they could be present during their patient and family encounters. So like I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. We brought up a good point too about resource utilization, because obviously, you know, our, our research group does a lot on, you know, how do we make our healthcare system more sustainable, but we talked earlier about how extra testing and more visits potentially to whether it's a merge or whatnot could be created because of poor communication.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that, I mean, that happens when a person is seeking out a diagnosis and potentially, you know, the people who they initially saw didn't communicate that well. And so they seek other opinions or even in somebody who's having a chronic disease managed, if, if you're effectively communicating about what to do in the event of, or how to seek out help when, when things don't go well, then, People don't necessarily do it in the the most efficient manner. And so they're mm-hmm. going to places like the eMERGE where a person is having to learn them from scratch or brand new or they're being admitted to hospital. And so a different consultant becomes involved. And and a lot of that stuff could be saved if we had a plan and effectively kind of communicated that with their individual patients.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you're preaching to the choir for real. I want to talk to you about your son, Henry. Mm-hmm. He. Unfortunately, at an early age, got diagnosed with cancer. I think he, I think it was, he was about eight months old. I, I want to, maybe before talking about how the, this has affected how you practice clinically and how it affected you personally, maybe just walk us through that whole experience, you know, having to get that diagnosis and and, and navigate through this dreadful situation.
1: Sure. Yeah. So you're right. He was diagnosed at the age of eight months. Um, I mean, initially he presented with some breathing issues and we had assumed it was group. And so had gone back and forth to see his pediatrician a couple of times and also to the emerge to receive some treatments, but it wasn't responding to the treatments as expected. And so eventually a chest X-ray was done and that's where they were able to see the tumor. And ultimately he was diagnosed with cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, I mean, the type of cancer he had, was, you know, quote unquote, a good cancer. So, I mean, he's done well with the treatment. He received radiation and chemotherapy and eventually had the, the tumor resected surgically. Unfortunately, though, he did develop a rare complication of it. Though, So he developed an autoimmune neurologic condition related to it, which has ultimately turned out to be probably in truth a, a worse diagnosis for us just because it is something chronic that affects them day to day. Um, That he still has to be on medications for. And
0: And Jim, what is it? Sorry, Jen. And what is that? You know, you're mentioning the autoimmune condition. Like, what does that look like for Henry?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's a thing called Opsiclonus Myoclonus Syndrome. And so, essentially, if he relapses, he develops issues with the way his eyes move and he develops issues with his balance. And historically, kids with this diagnosis didn't do well over the long term. So they had significant developmental delay. um thankfully with kind of more aggressive therapies the face of that has changed dramatically so he's actually doing really well and and um you know happy healthy kind of um successful kid but has to be on this immunosuppressant medication potentially for many years and still has relapses at times or ultimately get sick because of the medication that he has to be on. So it is something we have to kind of manage on an ongoing basis.
0: Mm. So Jen, obviously this is horrible circumstances. I, I want to get a sense from you. How did you navigate through this? Like you're a doctor, you mm-hmm. have, you have your, your first child at eight months with this crazy, unfortunate diagnosis and complications thereafter. Like how do you manage? Like Mm -hmm. maybe even mention like where were you in life? Like how many years ago was this?
1: Yeah. So this was um, what was this now? So about eight and a half years ago. So I had graduated from my residency about a year or two before that and was completing a master's degree at Hopkins and what had all sorts of ideas about what I wanted to do with my career and research and academia and things like that. And so kind of very practically, I guess it forced me to, to take a step back from that. It was obviously not easy to navigate from a, I guess, emotional perspective. Both Mick and I obviously struggled with the diagnosis and just the day-to-day kind of ups and downs of that, the frustrations and all that thing stuff. It was an interesting perspective into the patient side of medicine though, because I got to see firsthand the effects of a Bunch of different communication styles and a bunch of different ways of approaching disease that made me really evaluate how I wanted to be a clinician. And so um, it changed, it definitely changed some ways in terms of how I communicated things. It changed my approach to medicine in general um, and my treatment styles and these kinds of things. So it was tough because I'm trying to balance being a mom, um, also trying to balance the fact that he's developed this rare disease that I actually had quite a bit of knowledge. Surrounding And so had very definitive ideas in terms of treatments and having to, to deal with patients or sorry, with other physicians, both in the role as a patient, but also as a colleague.
0: Wow, Jen, that's obviously an extremely difficult situation. And I'm wondering if you could comment on your perspective, because like you were in this unique circumstance where you have the knowledge of being a neurologist talking with other neurologists about your son's condition. And you know, like you have access to the best studies, you have access to even probably contacting some of these experts in the field. And it must have been really difficult navigating between being mom and relying or using some of that expertise, like finding that line, you know? Mm
1: -hmm. That's exactly it. I mean, I guess I'm one of these people who's also particularly sensitive to various types of situations and relationships. And I understand that probably a lot of the people who were dealing with me were also probably a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, at the end of the day, some of these people were my colleagues. And not only did they have to give me sometimes some horrible news, but they had to have the added pressure of wanting to seem like an expert in Mm -hmm. front of somebody who... Probably also had a lot of expertise, and I mean, it's a rare enough disease that within less than a week, I had probably read every publication ever written <laughs> on the disease and so, and because at the time, you could literally pubMed it and get less I think it was like you'd get fifty nine hits with using the name of the disease, which is incredible. Just mm-hmm. most diseases, you'll get ten thousand hits and this it was under hundred, so I'd quickly become an expert in terms of all the knowledge that there was out there. And so I was walking this line in terms of wanting to maintain respectful relationships with people that I knew that I potentially would be working with or alongside at least for many years, but also wanting to advocate for my son. So I, by reviewing the literature, it was quite apparent to me that kids who were treated aggressively did much better. But because it is a rare disease, there isn't a ton of evidence that tells you that that's absolutely the best course of action. And so sometimes I was met with some hesitancy to pursue some of these treatments. And so trying to kind of find that balance of advocating while being respectful to the other doctors and things that were involved.
0: Um, like what a horrible spot to be in, you know, like you're, you're watching your kid go through all these treatments and, and going through like as difficult of a circumstance that he's had in his life or that you even want to imagine. And at the same time, you're thinking about, you know, your interactions with your colleagues and and obviously just a tough spot for, for everybody involved. But I just, you know, I saw how you and Mick, your husband, somehow were, I mean, you could tell me if things were as appeared, but you guys seemed like a team. You guys seemed like a, a unit that had one objective and it was to make Henry better and to focus on that and do whatever you needed to do to be able to achieve that goal. And Yeah, I um,
1: think, absolutely. I mean, I think I relied on him to help me advocate because sometimes it was more comfortable for him to, to say some of the things that I didn't necessarily want to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, looking back, I, you know, it forced me to put aside I guess processing what was happening so I sometimes I I guess the simplest thing is to say I was upset that I had to be the person who was sometimes the medical expert in the room and so it didn't allow me to be the mom sometimes and just Mm -hmm. allow someone else to worry about some of these things and so you know Mick was helpful in terms of balancing that but uh, you know to this day I still struggle with being able to you know be happy or sad like a mom would be while still being probably an integral part of his care team. Mm-hmm. And I know other parents who don't have my expertise are still part of their child's care team. But sometimes I, I felt like I was a little bit too much part of the decision-making process in a way that I was, I guess, hoping I didn't have to be.
0: Yeah, because that's a fair point, right? Like being in that spot, you almost feel like, like number one, it takes mm-hmm. away from being mom from that time that where you get to just, well, maybe is, is that harsh? I feel like that's harsh. It takes away from being mom, like being able to, is that harsh? Is it harsh? I don't want to be harsh. Okay. I feel, I feel like it takes away, t- it takes away time from you being mom to focus on the little things, like the things that mattered most to Henry at the time. And I also wonder, like, do you feel responsible for any of the consequences of, of his treatment or uh, of his outcome being so involved. And, you know, cause I I can't imagine period being in your spot, but one of the things that I, one of the things that I try to do as a clinician is to not put the onus on the family, you know, like the stuff that we decide, I don't want them to be like, Oh, I wish I wouldn't made that decision. I wish I, you know, I was more thoughtful when I made that call about mom's or, or dad's care. I want them Mm -hmm. to blame me. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You know, I want them to look at me and say like the docs, that was a docs call. That was a docs push, you know? And, and that's why I I always, I really felt when you're, when hearing you say that, like it'd be tough. Yeah. And that that was precisely
1: it. I mean, we have been very lucky in that Henry hasn't suffered a significant complication from the medication choices we've made, but that's, always been in the back of my my mind. I've said to Mick many times that, gosh, if something goes wrong here, you know, I will, I will feel even worse about this than you otherwise would. I mean, as a physician, if you make a decision and something goes badly, you already feel bad, but Mm -hmm. um, this would, you know, this would be something that it's harder to make a sensible decision, obviously, which is why you're not supposed to treat family members Mm -hmm. um, when it is so close. And so I've actually sought out physicians that are involved in this care who have been Great at helping me balance that. In that they have very pointedly said, you know, I'm making this decision. This is the best decision for us, and mm-hmm. and and you know, trying to put it on themselves to take away that concern of mine,
0: which has All been that. good. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. What about the experience of being mom? What was that like? Because I I know I, know I, I spoke to, we spoke a little bit offline. Like when my kids get sick, I'm 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 a mess. I hate it. It, And I can't even imagine being in that spot, playing mom or playing dad in that spot. What was that like?
1: Um, It was like, I'm not going to lie. It was hard. It's a bit of a blur. I have flashbacks every so often to me being a complete crazy person in front of nurses and things. And it kind of makes me cringe a little bit, but um, yeah, I mean, I, it was as difficult as it, as it sounds. And it's, once again, it kind of highlighted some of the changes in or the differences in communication and how that can really mm. kind of shape your day. I mean, I remember very distinctly some conversations where we had surrounding risk, for example, so mm. you know when there's a a procedure for example that we absolutely had to do like get a biopsy of the mask to figure out what it is well, there's no going forward without doing that, and mm. yet we were outlined a a series of horrible risks, including. <laughs> I think we were told a 10% chance that he would never wake up again. Mm. And I remember thinking, why would you tell me that? I mean, I, we have no choice here. He has to have this procedure and we're scared. We already get it. We already get that we're in a bad place. So I don't need to hear that because it's, you know, it's, it's something that I have no choice. I can't say no as a result of that. So, you know, it changed uh, my way of communicating with people. And I guess asking people what they want to hear, because sometimes people do want to hear all that stuff. And sometimes people don't because they recognize that something we have to do, so let's just do it.
0: I don't know if this might be intuitive to a lot of dogs, but that's super insightful. Like I, you know, I always preach that you wanna communicate in a way that is patient focused, like what they a style that they want to hear. You gotta not a cookie cutter approach, but hearing that about, you know, hearing you're in a situation where you're gonna get a biopsy, you have no choice yet. Someone's grilling grilling all these potential things that could go wrong. I guess I I don't know what I would, I guess I wouldn't have thought of it that way. Like, I I honestly, I would have thought of it as like, this is something I got to say, you know, I got to go through that, you know, the the risks because part of what what we do, but I don't know. It's it's just, I guess i never would have thought how difficult that could be to hear in a circumstance where you really don't have any options.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's changed the way i often frame conversations i mean if you're talking about a long term medication where a person does have choice obviously you're going to talk about risk and rate re- like go over the pros and cons but when it comes to something like this isn't a acute therapy or this is your only choice if you're hoping for any sort of good outcome i'll often start the conversation asking a person do you want me to go through these risks or knowing that this is our only treatment option do you want us just to do this and recognizing that your loved one is sick and we're in a bad place and we're just going to do everything we can do to make things better. Hmm. And I get and, different responses and did, people say, just do it, you know, and they don't want to hear.
0: And would you say if it wasn't for Henry's cancer, you'd be approaching it the same way?
1: Oh, I don't think so. I think I, I very distinctly saw my own approach to communication and my only, my own, like the way I think I did it more cookie cutter before I, I felt like I was a good communicator. And so therefore applied those same rules to every single patient. But I think this has made me take a step back and, and make sure that I have first engaged the patient in the conversation in a way that they want to be involved and, and it helps me adapt to them. I think I was, the other thing it's really made me do is that it made me kind of recognize those little things that clinicians don't necessarily think are important, but that are are important to families. And a little bit, again, along the communication line, I mean, I remember being admitted to hospital, for example, for days or even weeks at a time initially. Mm -hmm. And there was still a lot of uncertainty over things. And, you know, we knew the type of cancer, but he was quite sick initially and probably having side effects from the chemotherapy. And the tumor was so big, it was actually pressing on his spinal cord. So he was getting weak on one side of his body. And so there's a lot of concern and worry on our on our side of things. And I think in an effort to be respectful, sometimes the docs would, would almost keep their distance a little bit. They, uh, you know, I remember at one point on a, it was a Sunday or something like that. And I knew that the doctors tended to round at a certain time. So I always tried to be, you know, on the ward and in the room for those two hours that the, I knew the doctors did their rounding. And one of the Sundays they didn't come into the room and I knew that they were there because I could hear them kind of rounding on other people around the ward and they just didn't come into our room that day. And I remember being so upset and distraught because I just, I needed that connection to the team. And I know they Mm -hmm. didn't, you know, deep down inside, I knew they didn't have any extra information for me or, but I just, I needed that, that visit just to go through the routine and just to, you know, make sure that we were on the right track. And this was, you know, a Pretty short time after our diagnosis. I think it was literally only like five days into our admission. And so, Mm -hmm. and I've made that decision before in the past too, where I thought, ah, I've got nothing to tell that patient. It's Sunday, you know, their family's there. I'm just going to leave them alone Mm -hmm. because, you know, there's nothing I need to talk to them about. And it's even changed like that for me. I mean, I now make a point of every time I'm on service, I visit everyone every day. I poke my head. And even if I just say, got nothing for you today, but just making sure you're okay. Any questions? And sometimes they say, "Absolutely not." You know, I'm visiting with family. Go away. And I say, "Fine." You know, great. Enjoy your day. But I think just that it makes you recognize that in that time of that patient's kind of greatest fear, that sometimes you're that little lifeline. That you're providing a type of care that you don't necessarily realize. You're not just prescribing medicines or treatments. Your your presence or your your you know your quick hello or you're just your update is, is another type of treatment. It's another type of lifeline to the patients that I think sometimes you don't appreciate as much from the clinician's perspective, but I think means so much more to the patient.
0: That connection. You know, I, this, this is exactly why I wanted you on the show because, you know, straight up, we've never talked about this and in my world in ICU, you know, it's the same thing. Sometimes you're, it could be nuts in there. So you need to move, you need to round as efficiently as possible. And yeah, you could, you, sometimes you poke your head in and say hello. And sometimes it's just, you're, you feel anyway, too, like you need to move. So you're too busy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is the first time I'm hearing how difficult that could be on that patient experience or the family experience, something so simple, you know, just acknowledging their presence and acknowledging that they're there and just to say hello and and knowing that you're there
1: yeah i mean it's funny because that that little doctor's visit is your lifeline i mean if you think about it just even practically you're sitting in that room 24 hours a day waiting for your little five minute interaction with your physician and it's just and so if it gets missed it's you can realize how that's so important because it's already such this it's almost this pivotal part of your day right so Mm. yeah these little things really make a difference
0: Yes, I got to tell you, Jen, like learning more about what patients go through and this whole area of research on patient experience, it's been super enlightening. And I was sitting in the office about a week ago with one of our colleagues, Amy Sardi, and she's doing some research on the patient experience, family and patient experience with in, in relation to organ donation, and some of the stories she told us like literally put me in tears like little things like when families agree to donate and one of the organs gets rejected and they don't necessarily get an explanation on why Mm. how heartbreaking that could be for the family she told me the story too about an infant case or a young case where the the patient uh, was brain dead and agreed to donate and so they, they literally carried their their little one to the operating room and and said goodbye and then they were just alone you know nobody to walk them back to wherever they needed to go they were alone after that and you know it's something that you know i i, I doubt it was intentional or whatever but hearing a story like that you know or anybody listening do not leave that family alone that's the last circumstance you want somebody to be alone when they just been so generous and in going through such a tough time. But, um,
1: well, I think, I think honestly it is, it's just a complete perspective thing, right? Like as a physician, we go through horrible experiences many times a day often. And I think sometimes we feel like strangers in the midst of a family's, maybe personal grief or personal struggle. Mm. And yet for them i mean we're not the stranger we're that we're that one person that they think they feel a connection to one because you've just experienced one of the worst things of your whole life with that person so there's a, an immediate connection and not only that you're that one person that might know a little bit about what's going to happen next or about you know what's going on and so i think sometimes like i've heard residents and and things say that you know, they feel like they're being, they're intruding on a family who might be mm-hmm. sitting there grieving or watching their loved one die. But in truth, that connection that family feels to you is often, you know, quite strong. And so, you know, some of my most amazing experiences with patients have been just sitting with them for a while while they just sat with their family member. And and it's amazing. They want you to be there. It's not, you're not mm-hmm. intruding on any sort of personal. Connection between two family members—they want you to be there, and it's—it's it's from those types of experiences that I've actually gotten some of the best feedback, um, some of the the biggest thanks for just spending that time and not necessarily doctoring, but just sitting with them and and being there,
0: being present. You know, I—that's—it's I, those moments you're describing—is the exact reason why I fell in love with palliative care, mm-hmm. like being there during that time. It's a and it's a privilege. As far as I'm concerned, to be able to be with that, the patient and their family in such a sacred time, and, and I agree they want you there they you've connected they, that those moments where they get to talk about their loved ones before coming into hospital, what they were like, what they would say if they could they could speak for themselves, like those are moments that their family and and, and will. Never forget for the rest of their lives mm-hmm. those, those those periods of time, so yeah, I mean, all the trainees listen and listening, I know we're all in a rush, trainees are real deal dogs, you're all in a rush, we always feel time pressured, but I want to reinforce during those moments those are the the near end of life, those are the moments that families are never going to forget, okay, and so whatever we can do to make it the least painful process as possible. It's our duty.
1: Yeah. It's not even end of life. Right. Cause it's, I mean, I know obviously that's your experience cause you're in the ICU for yeah. palliative care, but um, you know, those same things happen in my MS clinic patient appointments where, you know, they're nowhere close to their end of life, but maybe they're struggling for, you know, maybe there's something very. Really, medical like a relapse or a medication side effect but sometimes it's just adjusting to a diagnosis or having to talk to somebody about you know something or even just changing their life to adapt to something and it's those extra minutes then too i mean it's all sorts of circumstances that aren't necessarily just end of life but all those little times when being a doctor is just spending a few extra moments with somebody and talking about something else or just being there or whatever that's, it is
0: that's a fair point and comes down to back to it, like being an effective communicator. And you know, I think even those moments of you spending time can have such potential upside in terms of their general health. Like instead of rushing to prescribe a antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication, maybe that extra time you spent to be able to voice some of their concerns and maybe, in fact, you do even alleviate some of their their concerns or stress. Maybe that prevents them from over-medicating or uh, or, uh, a visit to Emerge or or whatnot. It's that effective communication piece, right?
1: Yeah, no, it absolutely does. I mean, so many times when I've, you know, I've had patients that I've been following for years who, you know, I've obviously spent so much time speaking to, and they'll even tell me, oh, I had this thing happen. I didn't go to the Emerge because I, I just want to talk to you about this kind of stuff. And you understand my disease, and so they you know they didn't go through all of those next extra steps that probably in truth wouldn't have led them anywhere different and because they know that you're there and you're listening and you're reactive and you're mm-hmm. present that they you know they go through the right sequences of events to to get to a good place,
0: yeah, it's acknowledging their concerns. It's a big lesson actually. it's a big lesson that you know it's taken at least me personally years to to pick up on because you know <laughs> once again, going back to ICU, you're so, you often are quite focused on what's keeping them alive. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it's, they just, you know, family just needs to be heard. The patient needs to be heard. And that reduces their stress, allows them maybe to focus more on rehabbing and getting themselves stronger. But until you deal with that concern, whether it, you know, objectively, it might seem like it's, you know, not a big deal or whatnot, but to that patient it's everything you know like mm-hmm. you were given just even like um the example you're given earlier with henry the ivs mm-hmm. like we're knowing that is he going to get an iv where is it going to be like you know for henry it's not you know i don't want to speak for you but like being able to like address his concerns in that moment you know is everything
1: absolutely mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think too, as doctors, we're always focused on the concerns that we can do something about, you know, and so many times in neurology, obviously a person might have a, a symptom or a concern that I don't necessarily have a good treatment for. And sometimes as physicians, we're not as responsive to those types of things that we don't have treatments for, but mm-hmm. it is a treatment just to say, yeah, I hear you. That's probably related to this. I don't have anything, uh, you know, I'll often say I don't have a, a medicine or something to make you better. And Lots of times, the patient will say, "Well, I didn't really want a medicine. I just wanted you to know that it was
0: happening." Mm-hmm. Wow! Once again, acknowledging. And um, maybe switching gears a bit, you you talked about how this whole patient experience has affected the way you treat patients, mm-hmm. like uh, alluding to like you're you're more aggressive in treating their 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 conditions. I wonder if you could speak a little bit more towards that.
1: Yeah, I mean. Um, as physicians, I think in general, we're often risk averse. And, you know, sometimes it's easier to take a bad outcome that happened as a result of the disease, as opposed to a bad outcome that you directly caused as a result of your treatment. And so the concern is, is that we want to do no harm. And yet, obviously, that needs to be balanced with therapies that have a, a very significant likelihood of making things better. And so it's definitely make made me much more aggressive as a physician. I mean, at the end of the day, if I'm dealing with a young patient that has the capacity to to potentially handle some side effects, I I like to treat people aggressively now. And I mean, obviously with the the consent of the patient. I mean different patients have different levels of wanting to accept risk. And if it's the type of person who is concerned about side effects, obviously I will, I will consider what they want to do and, and might take a treatment path that they would prefer. But in general, my approach is that, like, let's do this thing. I mean, if we have the opportunity to make something better, let's do this. Because I think that um, that sometimes we are on the side of being a bit too safe.
0: We see it all the time. We see the lack of aggressive care as a result of, exactly as you put, we're, a fear of doing harm. and And of course, you know, you always want to, do what's best for the patient. But there is that, as you put it, that icky feeling if it's a decision that's not related to, directly related to the disease process, but to a treatment decision, there's this huge gorilla that's put on your back or that's felt amongst clinicians anyway. And I don't know, I don't know how we get around that, to be honest with you. Like, I'm a big, I'm a big... I don't know, fan of, I guess, fan of like, how do we make decisions? Like, in terms of like, what are the biases that are we mm-hmm. experiences and uh that we experience and, and how do we make better decisions? Like, I'm, I'm a mini obsessed about decision making yeah. because I don't know if collectively we are that good at it. Do you know what I'm saying? For the reasons that you mentioned already, like, you know, maybe we want to be safer than we should, but like, I don't know if you've seen a lot of this, like, recency bias, like, if somebody experienced a miss, if they missed a pulmonary embolism, a clot that went from your leg and into your lung that caused, you know, breathing problems and 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 heart problems. I could almost promise you that anybody that comes with any minor problem is going to get investigated for that. You know, like it's just a common step that people, if they felt they missed something, they feel like this is going to they increase the likelihood of seeing it. And I see this all the time. So I'm always obsessed on like, how do we make better decisions? Yeah, I don't know. And I I'm... think
1: actually one of the, one of the things that I think we can learn from is actually ICUs. So, um, and this is something actually I've been speaking to some colleagues about recently. I think some of the best decisions come out of team decisions. And if you think about some of the, um, the ways that care are delivered in some of the other subspecialties, like for example, in oncology, there's often these oncology rounds where a bunch of different physicians, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, and things like that, get together and decide for each individual patient, what's the best course of therapy. And I think that eliminates a lot of the bias because Mm. there's, you know, even if a person has recently had a bad outcome, they've got colleagues there to balance them. Or if they're afraid even about, you know, the risk of the treatment that they're proposing, well, it's something that's going to be shared. And so it's easier to take. And so I think in truth, medicine would be much more safely and probably evenly distributed in terms of, you know, decisions and, and, and approach to care. If we did things as teams more, um, mm-hmm. the key to the team being it, that it has to include people who respect each other, a balance of kind of personalities and, and approaches, but amongst people who, you know, want to take on to share decision making. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately there's better outcomes that way. I mean, we have a team that we're developing here to deal with a specific type of disease that we're trying to approach it in that manner. And in truth, I think we're going to have better outcomes for it because I think um, when we discuss cases and, and you know, make a decision as a team that we make better decisions.
0: This is beautiful because I, I, I could think of numerous times in ICU where you're running through a tough case and you're thinking out loud. And I could give an example of when the resident came up with a great idea the nurse that came up with a good idea rt's respiratory therapists even even medical students where they, it's an environment where they feel safe and they can, can express their opinion and that's made a difference in in patient outcomes Absolutely. so I, I think you're you're onto something there cuz i mean i think people in general are more subjective in their Decision making than they realize. Oh,
1: absolutely.
0: And and physicians aren't any different, you know. And uh, I I mean, I think this is why you're seeing more research on on you know what do you call it like decision tools and and implementing these decision tools and how it affects decisions and seeing if the outcomes are any better or not. But you know, I I think you hit the nail there. If we have a more balanced team approach distribution of like responsibility to like, that could go a long way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think maybe it's also worth mentioning that, you know, when we say aggressive care, like being more aggressive, it's in a scenario, you're offering care where you think the patient's going to benefit, you know, and I think it's, it's important to clarify, like, this is not necessarily circumstances where, you know, a patient's on their fifth line of chemo and we don't think they're going to benefit, but because we want, we're. Not wanting to deal with death or dying or confronting a patient, you know that's a different story. We're talking about when talking about yeah
1: a bunch of standard therapies where potentially some are more efficacious but have you know potentially more side effects. Although the the benefit risk ratio is still clearly in favor of benefit versus Mm -hmm. you know other therapies that have potentially less opportunity for benefit but also less side effects. So it's There's always, you know, the the therapies I'm talking about always have on balance, you know, significantly more benefit than risk. But that it's something that I will offer earlier because Mm -hmm. it's something that could definitely benefit them more.
0: I feel you. Okay. Last couple of things I want to touch on. Jenna, I want you to tell me about a time where you felt like your care really made a difference and you felt good about your job.
1: Yeah. I mean... In truth, it's not. I, if I was, it's not a significant distinct time that I need to tell you about. I guess the the best thing about my job is that almost every day I get to feel really good about what I do because you know I'll meet a patient that I've known for a long time who will just tell me that they you know they look forward to their appointments because they can't wait to see me or that the care that we're providing has changed their life or that they're now you know much happier with themselves or more settled in the in the prospect of their disease course. So for me it's not necessarily those clinical care awards or those kinds of things that stand out. It's that kind of everyday connection with the patient where it's quite obvious that we're making a difference in their life just by those little kind of everyday things that we do.
0: No, mm-hmm. oh, that's wonderful. I can I tell you a story that made me really proud to know you.
1: Sure. <laughs> I'm scared, but sure.
0: Yeah, I, I, this could be a lot worse, but it's, it's genuine. When I, we had a mutual friend whose mom got, uh, had a stroke essentially. And you were, all, you were the doc that were involved and took care of her till, uh, for the most uh, duration of her illness while she, uh, passed away and hearing our mutual friend talk about how amazing it was to see your face and to, see you provide the care that you did. And I know, you know, I know you and I, and I, and I know that you would be providing this care to all your patients, but to hear it from someone that, you know, means a lot to both of us and, and knowing that your presence had such a huge influence on how they were able to deal with this and in such a tough time, I, I was extremely proud of you. And, and, and I know it meant a lot to them. So I, I, every time I hear about hear that story it, it really it brings a smile to my face and knowing that you could be you, you knowing that you were being you exceptional
1: well thank you that's nice to hear
0: <laughs> anyway Jen thanks again for joining us on the podcast and uh, hopefully we talk soon it's been too long you know what I'm saying and uh, but thanks so much for joining the, the show and uh, we'll, we'll talk soon sounds good Wow. Um, thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Episode 11. Once again, if you want to leave any feedback, you can leave that at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us at Twitter at Quadcast and like our Facebook page. Don't hesitate to leave a five-star review or comment on, on iTunes. That always helps. And keep connecting. We we love it. And the show is growing. and We're going to continue to produce some more quality content. So thanks for listening, guys, and uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks.